Chapter Thirteen A of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Thirteen A. Looking towards the Presidency, the Illinois Republican Convention of eighteen sixty, a send-off for Lincoln, the National Republican Convention at Chicago. Contract of the Leading Candidates Lincoln Nominated Scenes at the Convention Sketches by Eyewitnesses Lincoln Hearing the News The Scene at Springfield A Visit to Lincoln at His Home Recollections of a Distinguished Sculptor In the latter part of the year 1859, after Lincoln had gained considerable national prominence through events already briefly narrated, some of his friends began to consider the expediency of bringing him forward as a candidate for the presidency in 1860. The young Republican party had thus far been in the minority, and the necessity was generally felt of nominating a man who would not render himself objectionable by advocating extreme or unpopular measures. The subject was mentioned to Lincoln, but he seems not to have taken it very seriously. He said that there were distinguished men in the party who were more worthy of the nomination, and whose public services entitled them to it. Toward spring in 1860 Lincoln consented to a conference on the subject with some of his more intimate friends. The meeting took place in a committee room in the State House. Mr. Bushnell, Mr. Hatch, then Secretary of State, Mr. Judd, Chairman of the Republican State Central Committee, Mr. Peck, and Mr. Grimshaw were present. They were unanimous in opinion as to the expediency and propriety of making Lincoln a candidate. But he was still reluctant. He doubted that he could get the nomination even if he wished it, and asked until the next morning to consider the matter. The next day he authorized his friends to work for him, if they so desired, as a candidate for the presidency, at the National Republican Convention to be held in May at Chicago. It is evident that while Lincoln had no serious expectation of receiving the nomination, yet having consented to become a candidate, he was by no means indifferent on the subject. The following confidential letter to his friend N. B. Judd shows his feelings at this time. Springfield, Illinois, February ninth, eighteen sixty. Honorable N. B. Judd, dear sir, I am not in a position where it would hurt much for me not to be nominated in the national ticket but I am where it would hurt some for me not to get the Illinois delegates. What I expected when I wrote the letter to Messrs. Dole and others is now happening. Your discomfited assailants are more bitter against me, and they will for revenge upon me lay to the Bates egg in the south and the Seward egg in the north, and go far towards squeezing me out in the middle with nothing. Can you not help me a little in this matter in your end of the vineyard? I mean this to be private. Yours as ever, A. Lincoln. It would seem that the original intention of Lincoln's friends had been to bring him out as a candidate for the vice-presidency. Honorable E. M. Haynes states that as early as the spring of 1859, before the adjournment of the legislature of which he was a member, some of the Republican members discussed the feasibility of urging Lincoln's name for the vice-presidency. Lincoln appears not to have taken very strongly to the suggestion. "'I recollect,' says Mr. Haynes, "'that one day Mr. Lincoln came to my desk in the House of Representatives to make some inquiry regarding another member, 
and during the conversation referring to his growing reputation i remarked to him that i did not know that we would be able to make him president but perhaps we could do the next best thing and make him vice-president he brightened up somewhat and answered by a story which i do not clearly recall but the application of which was that he scarcely considered himself a big enough man for president while the vice-presidency was scarcely big enough office for any one who had aspired to a seat in the senate of the united states on the ninth and tenth of may eighteen sixty the republicans of illinois met in convention at decatur lincoln was present although he is said to have been there as a mere spectator it was mr lamon tells us a very large and spirited body comprising the most brilliant as well as the shrewdest men in the party it was evident that something of more than usual importance was expected to transpire a few moments after the convention organized old abe was seen squatting or sitting on his heels just within the door of the convention building governor oglesby rose and said amid increasing silence i am informed that a distinguished citizen of illinois and one whom illinois will ever delight to honor is present and i wish to move that this body invite him to a seat on the stand here the governor paused as if to work curiosity up to the highest point then he shouted the magic name abraham lincoln a roar of applause shook every board and joist of the building the motion was seconded and passed a rush was made for the hero who still sat on his heels he was seized and jerked to his feet an effort was made to jam him through the crowd to his place of honor on the stage but the crowd was too dense then he was boosted lifted up bodily and lay for a few seconds sprawling and kicking upon the heads and shoulders of the great throng in this manner he was gradually pushed toward the stand and finally reached it doubtless to his great relief in the arms of some half-dozen gentlemen who set him down in full view of his clamorous admirers the cheering was like the roar of the sea hats were thrown up by the chicago delegation as if hats were no longer useful mr lincoln rose bowed smiled blushed and thanked the assembly as well as he could in the midst of such a tumult a gentleman who saw it all says i then thought him one of the most diffident and worst plagued men i ever saw at another stage of the proceedings governor oglesby rose again with another provoking and mysterious speech there was he said an old democrat outside who had something he wished to present to the convention receive it receive it cried some what is it what is it yelled some of the lower egyptians who seemed to have an idea that the old democrat might want to blow them up with an infernal machine the door opened and a fine robust old fellow with an open countenance and bronzed cheeks marched into the midst of the assemblage bearing on his shoulder two small triangular heart rails surmounted by a banner with this inscription two rails from a lot made by abraham lincoln and john hanks in the sangamon bottom in the year eighteen thirty the sturdy rail-bearer was old john hanks himself enjoying the great field day of his life he was met with wild and tumultuous cheers prolonged through several minutes and it was observed that the chicago and central illinois men sent up the loudest and longest cheering the scene was tempestuous and bewildering but it ended at last and now the whole body those in the secret and those out of it clamored for a speech from mr lincoln who in the meantime blushed but seemed to shake with inward laughter in response to the repeated calls he rose and said gentlemen 
"'I suppose you want to know something about those things,' pointing to old John and the rails. "'Well, the truth is, John Hanks and I did make rails in the Sangamon Bottom. I don't know whether we made those rails or not. The fact is, I don't think they are a credit to the makers,' laughing as he spoke. "'But I do know this. I made rails then, and I think I could make better ones than these now.' By this time the innocent Egyptians began to open their eyes. They saw plainly enough the admirable presidential scheme unfolded to their view. The result of it all was a resolution declaring that Abraham Lincoln is the first choice of the Republican Party of Illinois for the presidency, and instructing the delegates to the Chicago Convention to use all honorable means to secure his nomination, and to cast the vote of the state as a unit for him. On the 16th of May, 1860, the National Republican Convention met at Chicago. An immense building, called the Wigwam, erected for the occasion, was filled with an excited throng numbering fully twelve thousand. After the usual preliminaries, the convention settled down to the serious work of nominating a candidate for the presidency. From the outset the contest was clearly between Abraham Lincoln of Illinois and William H. Seward of New York. On the first ballot, Seward's vote of 173.5 was followed by Lincoln with 102, the latter having more than double the vote of his next competitor, Simon Cameron of Pennsylvania, 51 votes, who was followed by Salmon P. Chase of Ohio, 49 votes, and Edward Bates of Missouri, 48 votes. A contrast between these two remarkable men, Seward and Lincoln, now political antagonists, but soon to be intimately associated at the head of the government, one as president and the other as his prime minister, is most interesting and instructive. Seward was a trained statesman and experienced politician of ripe culture and great sagacity, the acknowledged leader of the Republican Party, New York's ex-governor and now its most distinguished senator. His position and character were therefore far more conspicuous than those of Lincoln. His supporters in the convention were well organized, bold, confident, and expected that he would be nominated by acclamation. Lincoln, on the other hand, was still essentially a country lawyer, who had come into prominence mainly as the competitor of Senator Douglas in Illinois in 1858. With all his native strength of mind and force of character, he was, compared with the polished Seward, a rude backwoodsman, unskilled in handling the reins of government, unfamiliar with the wiles of statecraft, and unused to the company of diplomats and social leaders. His political reputation and his support in the convention were chiefly Western. Yet his Cooper Institute speech, delivered three months before the convention met, had done much for him in the East, and the homely title of Honest Old Abe had extended throughout the free states. Unlike Seward, he had no political enemies, and was the second choice of most of the delegates, whose first choice was some other candidate. In political management and strategy the Western men at the convention soon showed that they were at best a match for those from the East. Soon after the opening of the convention Lincoln's friends saw that there was an organized body of men in the crowd who cheered vociferously whenever Seward's name was mentioned. At a meeting of the Illinois delegation at the Tremont House, says Mr. Arnold, on the evening of the first day at which Judd, Davis, Cook, and others were present, it was decided that on the second day Illinois and the West should be heard. There was then living in Chicago a man whose voice could drown the roar of Lake Michigan in its wildest fury, 
Nay, it was said that his shout could be heard on a calm day across that lake. Cook of Ottawa knew another man living on the Illinois River, a Dr. Ames, who had never found his equal in his ability to shout and hurrah. He was, however, a Democrat. Cook telegraphed to him to come to Chicago by the first train. These two men, with stentorian voices, met some of the Illinois delegation at the Tremont House, and were instructed to organize each a body of men to cheer and shout, which they speedily did, out of the crowds which were in attendance from the northwest. They were placed on opposite sides of the wigwam, and instructed that when they saw Cook take out his white handkerchief, they were to cheer and not to cease until he returned it to his pocket. Cook was conspicuous on the platform, and at the first utterance of the name of Lincoln, simultaneously with the wave of Cook's handkerchief, there went up such a cheer, such a shout as had never before been heard, and which startled the friends of Seward as the cry of Marmion on Flodden Field startled the Scottish foe. The New Yorkers tried to follow when the name of Seward was spoken, but beaten at their own game, their voices were drowned by the cheers for Lincoln. This was kept up until Lincoln was nominated, amidst a storm of applause probably never before equaled at a political convention. The result on the first ballot, with Seward leading Lincoln by seventy-one and a half votes, has already been given. On the second ballot Seward gained eleven votes, giving him one hundred eighty-four and a half, while Lincoln made the astonishing gain of seventy-eight votes, giving him a total of one hundred eighty-one, and reducing Seward's lead of seventy-one and a half votes to three and a half votes. There was no longer doubt of the result. The third ballot came, and Lincoln passing Seward, who had fallen off three and a half votes from the previous ballot, ran rapidly up to two hundred thirty-one and a half votes. 233 being the number required to nominate. Lincoln now lacked but a vote and a half to make him the nominee. At this juncture the chairman of the Ohio delegation rose and changed four votes from Chase to Lincoln, giving him the nomination. The wigwam was shaken to its foundation by the roaring cheers. The multitude in the streets answered the multitude within, and in a moment more all the volunteer artillery of Chicago joined in the grand acclamation. After a time the business of the convention proceeded, amid great excitement. All the votes that had heretofore been cast against Lincoln were cast for him before this ballot concluded. The convention completed its work by the nomination of Hannibal Hamlin of Maine for vice-president. Mr. F. B. Carpenter, who was present at Lincoln's nomination, furnishes a graphic sketch of this dramatic episode. The scene surpassed description. Men had been stationed upon the roof of the wigwam to communicate the result of the different ballots to the thousands outside, far outnumbering the packed crowd inside. To these men one of the secretaries shouted, "'Fire the salute! Lincoln is nominated!' Then as the cheering inside died away, the roar began on the outside, and swelled up from the exciting masses like the noise of many waters. This the insiders heard, and to it they replied, thus deep called to deep with such a frenzy of sympathetic enthusiasm that even the thundering salute of cannon was unheard by many on the platform. When the excitement had partly subsided, Mr. Everts of New York arose, and in appropriate words expressed his grief that Seward had not been nominated. He then moved that the nomination of Abraham Lincoln be made unanimous. Governor John A. Andrew of Massachusetts and Honorable Carl Schurz of Wisconsin seconded the motion, and it was carried. 
Then the enthusiasm of the multitude burst out anew. A large banner, prepared by the Pennsylvania delegation, was conspicuously displayed, bearing the inscription, Pennsylvania good for twenty thousand majority for the people's candidate, Abe Lincoln. Delegates tore up the sticks and boards, bearing the names of their several states, and waved them aloft over their heads. A brawny man jumped upon the platform, and pulling his coat-sleeves up to his elbows, shouted, "'I can't stop! Three times three more cheers for our next President, Abe Lincoln!' A full-length portrait of the candidate was produced upon the platform. Mr. Greeley telegraphed to the New York Tribune, "'There was never another such scene in America. Chicago went wild. One hundred guns were fired from the top of the Tremont House. At night the city was in a blaze of glory. Bonfires, processions, torchlights, fireworks, illuminations, and salutes filled the air with noise and the eye with beauty. Honest old Abe was the utterance of every man in the streets. The Illinois delegation before it separated resolved that the millennium had come. Governor Andrew, who was destined to have highly important and intimate relations with Lincoln during the Civil War, records his first impressions of him in a few vivid sentences. Beyond the experiences of the journey from Boston to Chicago, says Andrew's biographer, beyond even the strain and excitement of those hours in caucus and convention, was the impression made on him by Lincoln as he saw him for the first time. Andrew was one of the committee delegates who went to Springfield to notify Lincoln of his nomination at Chicago. He and the other delegates, he says, saw in a flash that here was a man who was master of himself. For the first time they understood that he whom they had supposed to be little more than a loquacious and clever state politician had force, insight, conscience, that their misgivings were vain. My eyes were never visited with the vision of a human face in which more transparent honesty and more benignant kindness were combined with more of the intellect and firmness which belong to masculine humanity. I would trust my case with the honesty and intellect and heart and brain of Abraham Lincoln as a lawyer, and I would trust my country's cause in the care of Abraham Lincoln as its chief magistrate, while the wind blows and the water runs. Dr. J. G. Holland gives a vivid picture of Lincoln's reception of the exciting news. In the little city of Springfield, says Dr. Holland, in the heart of Illinois, two hundred miles from where these exciting events were in progress, sat Abraham Lincoln, in constant telegraphic communication with his friends in Chicago. He was apprised of the results of every ballot, and with some of his friends sat in the journal office receiving and commenting upon the dispatches. It was one of the decisive moments of his life a moment on which hung his fate as a public man, his place in history. He fully appreciated the momentous results of the convention to himself and the nation, and foresaw the great struggle which his nomination and election would inaugurate. At last, in the midst of intense excitement, a messenger from the telegraph office entered with the decisive dispatch in his hand. Without handing it to any one, he took his way solemnly to the side of Mr. Lincoln, and said, the convention has made a nomination, and Mr. Stewart is the second man on the list. Then he jumped upon the editorial table and shouted, "'Gentlemen, I propose three cheers for Abraham Lincoln, the next President of the United States.' And the call was boisterously responded to. He then handed the dispatch to Mr. Lincoln, who read it in silence, and then aloud. After exchanging greetings and receiving congratulations from those around him, he strove to get out of the crowd, and as he moved off he remarked to those near him, "'Well, 
There is a little woman who will be interested in this news, and I will go home and tell her." And he hurried on, with the crowd following and cheering. As soon as the news spread about Springfield, a salute of a hundred guns was fired, and during the afternoon Lincoln's friends and neighbors thronged his house to tender their congratulations and express their joy. In the evening, says one narrator, the State House was thrown open and the most enthusiastic meeting held by the Republicans. At the close they marched in a body to the Lincoln mansion and called for the nominee. Mr. Lincoln appeared, and after a brief, modest, and hearty speech, invited as many as could get into the house to enter, the crowd responding that after the fourth of March they would give him a larger house. The people did not retire until a late hour, and then moved off reluctantly, leaving the excited household to their rest. Among the more significant and intimate of the personal reminiscences of Lincoln are those by Mr. Leonard W. Volk, the distinguished sculptor already mentioned in these pages. Mr. Volk arrived in Springfield on the day of Lincoln's nomination, and had some unusually interesting conversation with him. He had already, only a month before, made the life-mask of Lincoln that became so well and favorably known. It is one of the last representations showing him without a beard. The circumstances and incidents attending the taking of this life-mask, as narrated by Mr. Volk, are well worth reproducing here. One morning in April 1860, says Mr. Volk, I noticed in the paper that Abraham Lincoln was in Chicago, retained as one of the counsel in a sandbar trial in which the Michigan Central Railroad was either plaintiff or defendant. I at once decided to remind him of his promise to sit to me, made two years before. I found him in the United States District Courtroom, his feet on the edge of the table, and his long dark hair standing out at every imaginable angle. He was surrounded by a group of lawyers, such as James F. Joy, Isaac N. Arnold, Thomas Hoyne, and others. Mr. Arnold obtained his attention in my behalf, when he instantly arose and met me outside the rail, recognizing me at once with his usual grip of both hands. He remembered his promise, and said in answer to my question that he expected to be detained by the case for a week. He added, I shall be glad to give you the sittings. When shall I come, and how long will you need me each time? Just after breakfast every morning would, he said, suit him the best, and he could remain till court opened at ten o'clock. I answered that I would be ready for him the next morning, Thursday. Very well, Mr. Volk. I will be there and I'll go to a barber and have my hair cut before I come." I requested him not to let the barber cut it too short, and said I would rather he would leave it as it was, but to this he would not consent. He was on hand promptly at the time appointed. Indeed, he never failed to be on time. My studio was in the fifth story. There were no elevators in those days, and I soon learned to distinguish his step on the stairs, and am sure he frequently came up two, if not three steps at a stride. When he sat down the first time in that hard, wooden, low-armed chair, which I still possess, and which has been occupied by Douglas, Seward, and Generals Grant and Dix, he said, "'Mr. Volk, I have never sat before to sculptor or painter, only for daguerreotypes and photographs. What shall I do?' I told him I would only take the measurements of his head and shoulders that time, and that the next morning I would make a cast of his face which would save him a number of sittings. He stood up against the wall, and I made a mark above his head, and then measured up to it from the floor, and said, You are just twelve inches taller than Judge Douglas. That is, just six feet four inches. 
End of chapter 13a. Recording by Bill Borst.